After the murders of Rhonda Jones and Kristen Bennett, a woman named Megan Oxendine, who knew Rhonda, spoke to the media. Less than two months later, that 911 call was made after Megan's body was discovered in some bushes by a vacant house in the same area where both Rhonda and Kristen from our previous episode were found. Was Megan targeted by the same murderer? Did she know something? And was she killed for it? I'm Brittany Hunt. And I'm Chelsea Locklear, and this is The Red Justice Project. Megan Oxendine was a 28-year-old Lumbee woman. Megan was well-loved by her family and friends. She was a daughter, a sister, a niece, and a mother, and a truly beautiful person. And Megan is described by her sister as being so smart and such a good person, and her aunt says that she was a good girl from a very good family. Others described her as being very sweet, and she was from Pembroke, North Carolina, just like Chelsea, and her family describes her as a country girl, too, who loved fishing and horses, and she actually begged her family to get her a horse for a long time, and she got her first horse when she was just 11 years old, and, uh, you know, she always had dreams, too, of becoming a veterinarian. And also, you know, Lumbee women, we um, have the, I wouldn't call it a stigma, but I would say the reputation of being very beautiful. But Megan was especially beautiful. Um, Looking back at old pictures of her from high school and even in her 20s, she was extremely gorgeous. So I just wanted to remark about that as well. And she also was the second of four daughters. And her family said she was a bit of a prankster and loved to play jokes on them and scare them half to death. That sounds like me. And also speaking of pranks, when I was talking to my cousin Josh, who listens to our podcast all the time, hey Josh, uh, he actually mentioned uh, how he was friends with Megan growing up, like knew each other their whole lives, and he talked about a bunch of the pranks that she would play on the bus, and he was the target of a lot of her pranks, even though they were really good friends. So he just said she was just full of life and just a really great person to know. And she was also really, really good friends with Lauren Holmes, who we featured on one of our earlier episodes. So it's just like, you know, all of these people that we're featuring are so connected to our communities and through us, through other people that we know. So it's kind of crazy seeing it all come full circle. And also Rhonda was good friends who we mentioned last episode with Jessica Lowry, who was featured about two episodes ago. So once again, Robinson County is a very small place. And, you know, if you don't know somebody, they know someone that, you know, Um, it's all connected. Right. We also learned that Megan had moved from Pembroke to Lumberton to live with her boyfriend at the time this takes place, and her family did not like that at all. So I'll tell you what, moving anywhere with these raggedy men, we warned y'all the last episode, don't follow Amanda Maxton, do not follow Amanda Lumberton, you know, these just a terrible idea, y'all. Let's all just stay put. Facts. And so, after the murders of Rhonda and Kristen, Megan's interviewed by the local CBS station around the location of where both women's bodies were found. The interview gets posted on April 19th, so this is just one day after Kristen and Rhonda were found. And here are clips from the interview of Megan talking. And I don't comprehend stuff like this too, because I don't understand how somebody could do somebody's child, mother, niece... Megan Oxendine lives in the area and says Jones was a sweet and good person. 
I ain't never seen her act out or nothing. She was just quiet. She didn't really mess with too many people. And every single time I watch this video of her, I just get the chills because it's just eerie to me to know, I don't know, just know that she would be gone in just a few weeks after this, you know, just a short walk from where she was standing in the video. Right. It really is so eerie. And I have the same exact feeling when I watch that clip. And the thing about this that's also extra crazy is that Megan was attacked shortly after this, but before she was murdered. And this is a clip from her mama talking to the news about the attack. My child came up here three, three and a half, four weeks ago, had been attacked. So just weeks after Rhonda and Kristen's murder and Megan's interviews on the news, she was attacked by some people in the same area of Lumberton. She told her mama that she couldn't see the people, but they had, and I quote, cut her hair and also that they had tried to kill her. Which that part to me is just so strange, right? Like who attacks someone and cuts the person's hair? I just wonder, did they do it with a knife or with scissors? Were they trying to kill Megan or, or either just scare her? I don't know, the, the hair cutting part of it to me is just really odd and just so personal too. Yeah, and I wonder if it was multiple people attacking her and I would imagine it would be hard to cut someone's hair if it was just kind of a one-on-one -on -one fight or attack. Yeah, her mama actually said it was five people who attacked her and also Megan said she could not see her at attackers. And so I also wonder if that part's true, that you know that she couldn't see them or if she was actually scared to tell her mama who it was. And her mama also said that they contacted law enforcement. And Chelsea, can you just read the quote from her mama? My child came up here three to four weeks ago and had been attacked. Two officers knew that night. And that's why one of the officers got on the phone with the detective for the two other girls. And he said he would call me in two days. I've never heard from him. Megan was still alive then, but now she's not. So the police were contacted about the attack, which remember now, this happened right after the murders of two women in the same area, and the police did not follow up with Megan or with Megan's mother. And honest to God, y'all, I mean, I'm so sick of reporting stories like this where the police and every single murder in the county of specific types of women just completely bungle everything up. Like, why would you not contact her or her mama? And this is another quote from her mama, and she says, I don't know whether to cry or get mad, because if they would have contacted me and could have got Megan to talk more and could have done something to help protect her, but now my child is gone. Honey, I don't know whether to cry or get mad either. I, I just, this mess has got to stop. Megan's murder could have been 100% preventable, and whoever attacked her could definitely be involved in her murder. But again, no investigation into the attack. Brittany, do we know any motive as to why they would attack her? Well, I read that Megan was actually there when Kristen Bennett's body was found in the abandoned house on Peachtree Street. Apparently, that house was a place a lot of people who were addicted to drugs in the area would go, um, they, they would go there to use drugs. And she went in there that day with a man to do drugs and they saw the body. Now, the FBI says that Megan is not the person who reported the body, and they wouldn't confirm that she had been there, but the Inside Edition article did confirm it through her mama. And her mama also said that when she spoke to the detectives about her getting attacked, she told them she believed Megan knew something about Kristen and Rhonda's deaths. They never contacted her to find out what she knew. You know, which is just obviously very suspicious. And the weeks pass after the fact, and then on a Wednesday night, so on May 31st, 2017, Megan leaves her house that she 
sometimes would share with her boyfriend Harley and his roommate James. And James said that she was leaving to go find drugs to use. He said that she would usually always come back for food, but after that night she didn't come back. And we also believe that another woman named Cynthia Jacobs, who we'll mention later, was also one of the last people to see Megan. And three days later, on Saturday, June 3rd, 2017, a 15-year-old boy named Marcus McCollum was playing basketball with his friends in East Lumberton near some train tracks at about 10 in the morning, and they smelled a very strong smell that kept getting stronger, and they decided to walk towards it. And the smell eventually led them to this house on the train tracks where they saw a bush, and this is what he said. So that's when I got on my knees and I looked, and I had seen like the hip. And then my friend didn't see it, so we walked around the other way. I had moved the bush back, and then that's when he had looked, and he said, Bro, that's a body. He also said, I went to move the bush, and a whole lot of flies came out of the bush, and I started getting curious, thinking something's in there. The face, it was beaten badly. It was just black, and I thought there was a bag on it. Marcus McCollum and his friends had just discovered the body of Megan Oxendine. She was found by them under a tree in some bushes behind an abandoned house at 608 East 8th Street, just four blocks from the police department. Her body was very badly decomposed, and authorities weren't sure how long she had been dead. According to Inside Edition, her shirt was found underneath her body. She had a wound on the back of her head, had something stuffed in her mouth, and was in the fetal position like she was scared or trying to protect herself. Reports also say that investigators had to cut out a small tree to get to her body and that the weeds around the house were roof high and there were branches on top of her and roof shingles. And actually, they didn't know it was Megan at first. It took them a few days to identify her, I think due to the decomposition. And we're also not sure if Megan's family even knew she was missing, but her mama did say this. And Brittany, can you read this quote? She said, I knew if Megan didn't call me with hearing something like this, and it was down in that area where she was hanging out, I knew it was my child, and she never called me. And here's another clip of her mama talking about the pain of losing a child. It's something I would wish for anybody to get to have their child took from them. Hearing their mama's cry always gets me, Brittany. I mean, I pray that this is a pain I never have to experience. It really seems unimaginable. And also, her family found out about Megan's murder through Facebook. Photos were shared of her that said, rest in peace, and that's how they found out. Yeah, and what makes these cases even worse, though, again, is the way the victims' families are treated by the police and the media, too. So, even though Rhonda and Kristen did not have any charges related to sex work, they were still referred to as prostitutes in the media and by the police. And as for Megan, however, she did have one pending charge, and just like the other two women, also battled with substance abuse issues. And unfortunately, these are often the kinds of victims that don't get as much sympathy from the media. And these are the kinds of crimes that often go unsolved or get very unfair resolutions. And so Megan's mother's sadness is even deeper, I think, because not only does she have to try to grapple with the reality of her child's murder, she's now going to have to fight a battle to get the police to treat Megan with the dignity and justice that she deserves, which unfortunately often never happens and is the exact reason why we you know, we created this podcast. Facts on facts on facts. But after Megan's death, the Lumberton Police Department realizes they are out of their depth. And this is when they officially request help from the FBI. 
And then Megan's body sent away for an autopsy to Chapel Hill. And just like with Kristen and Rhonda, her cause of death comes back undetermined, though she did have drugs in her system, but not enough for an overdose. And now, mind you, the kid who found Megan literally said she looked like she had been beaten and her face was so black that he thought it had a bag on it. But yeah, an undetermined cause of death. The autopsy report, which is available online to anybody, for anybody to see, also said that she could have potentially been strangled, but that it couldn't be said for sure. And the fact that it took them 16 months, like, it's crazy, especially when you know how she was found in the fetal position and with something stuffed in her mouth. Like, it all kind of points to a homicide to me. And, right. And when you spoke to Miss Sheila last week, Rhonda's mama, she said they told her it should take a month or so, and then it ends up taking well over a year. So not only are the families not getting justice, but they're also getting these turtle-like progressions of information that I'm sure they wanted to get much faster than they did. Yeah, and I actually um, just Googled it, and it says that on average, autopsies only take two to four hours to perform. So yeah, for it to take 16 months is freaking ridiculous. Yeah. And thinking about the rape kits, too. Oh, my God. Like, seriously, please do not get me started, Chelsea. All right. Please get started. (laughs) So, at this time, and we mentioned this in the Anya Aguilar case as well, there was a backlog of rape kits. So, Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan's rape kits sat in the Lumberton Police Department untested for a year and eight months. So, 20 months total after their murders. Which means they were not tested until 2019, even though the murders happened in 2017. Which is just, I mean, another unfathomable part of these cases. Stuff like this is, I mean, really feels like stranger than fiction to me. Like, you really can't make this stuff up. And I'm going to read y'all this direct quote from the ABC News 15 article by Tanya Brown about this. It says, At the time of the autopsies of Christina Bennett, Rhonda Jones, and Megan Oxendine, Lumberton detectives were advised that due to the condition of the bodies, the sexual assault evidence collection kits would likely not yield results to advance the investigations. For that reason, other evidence, which may have had a better chance of advancing the investigative process, were prioritized and submitted to the crime lab. The sexual assault evidence collection kits were submitted more than a year later. Their analysis did not provide positive results. And Lumberton Police Chief Michael McNeil said, regardless of the test results, the sexual assault evidence collection kits for each of these women should have been submitted to the lab in a more timely manner. The Lumberton Police Department will review the policies and procedures in place to determine if uh, if any changes should be made. We continue to work every day to uncover and prove how these women died. We hold ourselves accountable to their families and to this community to uncover the truth. Wait, his statement makes no sense. He's saying it should have been done, but isn't it his department and his decision? Exactly. So what does he even mean? And also, all women were found naked, so why would they not do a rush on the rape kit? And then another part of another article says the evidence was collected from their bodies, and we're not sure if that means DNA or fingerprints or blood or saliva or maybe even none of that. And also, we know that the fingernail clippings from the women still have not been tested for DNA. So in 2019, according to CBS 17, the fingernail clippings were submitted for testing to the crime lab in North Carolina. Wait, so autopsies took 16 months, the rape kits took 20 months, and the fingernail clippings still haven't been examined, even though it's been four years. 
And thanks to several of our listeners, we're actually able to access Kristen Bennett's autopsy report, which is available online through CBS News. Now remember, we said Kristen Bennett was wrapped in a gray blanket and stuffed in a TV cabinet. Well, on the autopsy, it says this. Brittany, can you read it? The gray blanket is disposed of at the office of the chief medical examiner at the request of law enforcement. And we'll just let y'all reflect and sit with that for a moment. Why do y'all think that could be four years of fingernail clippings of three women, evidence destroyed? I mean, could this mess get any sketchier? Like, really? Yeah, so we'll just continue to let y'all sit with that. But one more thing. Remember earlier the clips of the interview that we played with Megan? Well, in that interview, she was actually wearing a Chicago Bulls shirt and had a black book bag on her shoulders. And that black book bag was actually found in the garbage six weeks after she did the interview. And another very strange thing to me in this is that the neighbors who lived in the house right beside where Megan was found were actually pretty close with Megan. And if they lived beside that house I guess I guess I'm just thinking why didn't they smell um, the decomposition before the teenagers did or you know maybe her body was moved there you know right before it just kind of seems odd to me it's definitely very very strange and there's so many more questions than we have answers for yeah and I also tried to google the house that Megan was found in on 608 East 8th Street to find out who owns it and it looks like it was sold last year for just four thousand dollars and also on the property listing it has this thing called safety statistics and it says that the safety score is literally a zero and that it is safer than zero counties in the state so um yeah that's obviously terrible and also we didn't mention this in the last episode but the house that Christina Bennett was found in on Peachtree Street nearby is owned by a lawyer named Woodbury Bowen. And in case y'all have watched, uh, if y'all have watched or haven't watched the popular series that's out now about Robinson County called Moment of Truth, which I highly recommend, uh, Woodbury Bowen is actually the attorney who first represented Daniel Green. I have got to watch that show soon. So many people keep telling me, Brittany, and I have not. Have you watched it? Yes, it was very good. I highly recommend it. Okay. It's on my to-do list. But, you know, another thing is both Rhonda and Kristen were intentionally hidden. Rhonda was stuffed in the trash can and Kristen was hidden in a TV cabinet and wrapped in a blanket. But Megan was left outside for people to legit see her. Almost kind of like a warning. It also makes me wonder if maybe the perp didn't have a car and like had no choice but to leave the bodies in the area. Or if they knew they wouldn't get caught, you know. But y'all, and unfortunately, the story just gets worse and worse. So in addition to the three murders, there are also two missing women from this exact same area. A 41-year-old Lumbee woman named Cynthia Jacobs, who's also called Twister by her family and friends, was the last known person to be with Megan before she was murdered. Cynthia has been missing since May or June of 2017, so either the month... Um, Um, before Megan's body was found or the same month. And let me just read y'all this Facebook post that was written about Cynthia from a family member. It says, It's been two years since we got the call that Cynthia is missing. God knows it's nerve-wracking not knowing where she is or if she's still alive. I pray she is just hiding because she knows a lot about the mystery murders. She was with Megan when she was murdered. Several people have contacted Cynthia's brothers and sisters saying that they have spotted her and we all jump in the cars and take off only to be disappointed. 
we, her family, have found more info than the Lumberton Police Department detectives and have given the info to them only to have found out they just put it in her file. Lord, please send a clue or angel or something to let us know where she is. So basically, she's another person who knows too much. And also reports say she was last seen either in Fairmont, North Carolina or on Chippewa Street in Lumberton, which remember is the exact same street Lisa Harden from our last episode was found murdered on and also only 0.3 miles or about two to three blocks from where Megan was found. Also, some reports put her as missing on May 31st of 2017 and others say June 4th, 2017. So either three days before or one day after Megan was found. Also, we aren't sure where Cynthia is from, but we do know that she had at least one charge for prostitution, potentially stemming from that East East Lumberton area also. And Cynthia is not the only person to go missing from that area around this time. So actually, Abby Patterson, who's a white woman, was 20 years old in 2017. And she was living in Florida in this kind of post-rehab treatment facility and had actually just gotten out of rehab in Charlotte, North Carolina. But she was from Lumberton and she was visiting her mama there um, for just two days. And on September 5th, so about three months after Megan was found and Cynthia disappeared, at 11.30 in the morning, Abby texted her mama saying that she was going to run some errands but she would be back in one hour. She was seen by a witness getting into a brown Buick at her home on East 9th Street, and she has been missing ever since. Now remember, Megan's body was found on East 8th Street, so this is literally one street over from there. And police say they did identify the man who picked her up and that they think she knew him, and he claims he dropped her off at another location. But we don't know any further information about that, and the police won't say who the man is or where he dropped her off at. Her phone was also going straight to voicemail by that evening, and her family reported her missing at 6 p.m., just six and a half hours after she left home. And also, we just want to point out that Abby's case has been treated a lot different from the three murder victims, but especially Cynthia. The local paper published an article using a really cute photo of Abby from social media. I mean, she was a really beautiful girl. But for Cynthia, they actually just used a mugshot. And they also do that with Kristen Bennett as well. And also, if you remember earlier in this episode, we mentioned that the FBI was called in after Megan's murder. Well, they actually did not even start working on these cases until Abby went missing. So once Abby went missing is when the FBI officially agreed to get involved in the cases. So the first three murders and Cynthia's disappearance, I guess, were not meaningful enough for the FBI to decide to work on. But for some reason, which I'm... I'm sure many people can figure out that reason Abby's disappearance was. And the FBI also has Abby's photo and information listed on their website, but does not have anything posted about Cynthia. And again, Abby is a very cute, young, white woman. And we know from doing this work and also from just turning on the news that the disappearances of, you know, pretty young white women often get very different treatment in the media and by the police than disappearances or murders of women of color. And Abby's mom also serves in some capacity on the Board of Elections. And very early on, they worked to distance Abby's case from the other four cases. And the police has also come out and said that they're not related. But, I mean, how would they know that unless they knew a lot more than what they're telling us? Right. And while we forever hope for justice for Abby, 
We also hope for justice for Cynthia, too. She deserves the same amount of attention, the same FBI profile, the same resources that Abby is getting. And we also learned from the Dark Water podcast that two swamps on Almac Road were drained based on tips they, they got about Abby, but they didn't find anything. And also, I want to mention one more person who went missing, um, not from the East Lumberton area, but actually from West Lumberton on July 27th of the exact same year. And his name is Tony Evans. And he actually went missing from the same street where both Rhonda and I lived, which is Hedge Drive in Lumberton. And also on May 1st, 2020 at 625 p.m., the body of 20-year-old Elizabeth Lee Locklear was found in a field off of Moses Road. Elizabeth was known to hang out around East Lumberton, just like our first four victims, and she was also struggling with drug abuse and had OD'd the week before in a public place in a viral video that was posted on Facebook but has since been deleted. We're unsure if she had OD'd when she was found in the field, but the circumstances are very strange. And also, according to the Dark Water podcast, condoms were found around her body. I am literally going to need to go smudge myself after this story because this is just really, like, just too many murders, too many disappearances for me. Same, especially if y'all just understood how small our community is. And, right. and before we conclude this episode, we want to shout out Miss Sheila Price. As a reminder, Miss Sheila is the mother of Rhonda Jones, the second victim who was found who we covered in our last episode. In response to Rhonda's murder, Miss Sheila became a major activist to not only get these murders solved, but to also keep a record of those who have been murdered, gone missing, or died under suspicious circumstances, or received unfair justice after their murders were solved. Miss Sheila created a Facebook group called Shatter the Silence, and y'all, I highly recommend that you join that group if you haven't done so yet. They share victims' photos, stories, lists of victims that are way more comprehensive than anything law enforcement will ever provide to us, and also just, you know, encouragement for the victims' families. And you know, a lot of times when these things happen, people will say, my thoughts are with you, or something like that, but Miss Sheila has turned thoughts into action, and her love for her child and her anger and rage about what has happened to her, uh, she's funneled that into a channel to help and uplift other families who have been ripped apart by violence. And a lot of our information we actually get from that page, as well as ideas for stories and in contacts with families. You know, if someone comments, that was my baby, we know that they were probably related to them. So it really helps us in doing our research. So she's also created a pathway for the Red Justice Project, too. So we can't thank you enough, Miss Sheila. If you have any information about the deaths of Rhonda Jones, Kristen Bennett, Megan Oxendine, please contact the FBI in Charlotte at 704-672-6100. The reward money was actually just raised a few days ago from $30,000 to $40,000 for information into the circumstances that led to the deaths of Rhonda, Kristen, or Megan. There's a $10,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Abby Patterson. There's a $5,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Cynthia Jacobs. Also, if you want an even more detailed account of these events, we recommend that you listen to the Dark Water podcast or the 32 Degrees podcast. And I wanted to leave you with one final message before we close. Megan's father used to ride to Lumberton almost every day on his bicycle to talk to people in the area, trying to find out what happened to his child. He did this until November of last year when he was killed by a drunk driver. Every year, the families of the victims get older, and they deserve to know what happened to their daughters before they leave this earth. 
that chance has already been taken away from one parent. Don't take it away from others. If you have information, the families deserve to know.